Hey, everyone. Today, I'm talking to David Phelps, who wrote a very interesting newsletter called User Generated Finance. And that's now part one and part two. Um, it's one of the most provocative uh, essays I've read and answers one of the key questions in crypto or kind of looks into one of the key questions in crypto, which is, uh, what are these what are these tokens? Why do they have value? And why are they traded like stock? Um, I think it's uh, kind of a really important question to consider, especially given the billions upon billions of dollars that's um, generated and traded every day using tokens. David, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Really great to have you. Uh, you are, I think, chronically underfollowed on Twitter. I mean, you just kind of started. <laughs> I'm just trying. It's good. <laughs> I appreciate yeah. it. You have less than 100 followers. And normally when people like, you know, do True. media stuff, they're already like pretty trending. So uh, hopefully I will play some role in kind of catapulting you uh, into, into popularity. <laughs> and when, when I release my own governance token, uh, getting double the rewards is one of the first hundred followers, you know, for definitely, sure. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> I'm waiting for my- A useless governance token for my Twitter. <laughs> but David, um, I don't know anything about you and I don't think most people listening uh, will. So tell yeah. us a little bit about yourself. What, what's your background and how did you get interested in crypto? Yeah, great, great question. So, so the, the boring professional answer is I, I run an education company. Uh, and what we have aimed to do is, is get educators paid better than they could otherwise, which is actually pretty easy in New York, where educators are often exploited by, by tutoring agencies. Uh, and so this, I would just say this question of, you know, how do you serve a function in some ways as an intermediary, while also trying to disintermediate the traditional ways that creators have made money, um, in order to get them paid better has actually been something that's been like top of mind for, you know, me for a while. And, and I think crypto is going to play a big part of that in the future. That's the boring answer. Um, I, I think that the, the more kind of fun answer is I'm a child of the 90s. Uh, and the internet for me was extremely exciting as a 13 year old, <laughs> it's like 1999. Uh, and you think about that era and everything, I think it's like P2P at that point, right? You would meet random people on the internet. Sometimes that could be very bad, uh, but it was also you know, kind of promising. And eBay was P2P, Napster was P2P, right? I was joining torrent communities, which, which really in some ways were a first vision of like, you know, decentralized creation pools, right? Where uh, you could be part of like a film torrent community and it's totally decentralized and you're downloading this film from everyone else's hard drives all around the world and you're getting points for it. And the points is the ratio, right? For this torrent community in terms of how much you've given and how much people have downloaded from you versus how much you've downloaded from them. And so it's, it's tokenized in the, in, in, in the kind of way in which, you know, you're gaining within this community some sort of clout respect um, for being a giver and for, for giving more than you're getting, right, and sharing on this decentralized platform. Um, I also, uh, I was a writer, uh, I've been a writer for a long time, but, but what I used to write about was film. And it was a pretty exciting era, I think, also in, you know, like early 2000s, up until probably about 2007, 2008, in which people had blog spots and blog spots were huge. <laughs> you probably remember this, right? Then Tumblr's, right? And like everyone would, you know, uh, if, you, if you really got clout, you'd be like listed on the left-hand side of the bar of like someone's blog spot to show that like they were linking to you. And that was like a big deal. And, and it, was, it was, again, all P2P, right? This was like, writers are all discovering each other. You didn't need to be, you know, writing for New York Times or anything. As long as you were saying interesting things, people would share your work. And every morning I would get up and I would like log into the RSS reader on Google and I would check, you know, all the, the, the latest articles people have written. 
all of this should sound super familiar, right? Because this is all what we're now living through again with, I think, an added layer, which is monetization. Um, but this is what Substack is, right? Substack is just that plus monetization and a fact that they send it to your email. And that's it. Um, you know, so, so around, I, I guess, probably like 2010 or so, that's when everything starts becoming centralized, right? You have everyone like leaves Blogspot to great degree and start leaving Tumblr for, you know, like Facebook. Everyone hates Facebook. Everyone knows it's terrible. But it promises you engagement because you can automatically get, you know, your uncle's cousin's friend to like, you know, hate on your work. And then you're immediately, you know, entrenched in some sort of like online battle about your half thoughts that you mistakenly posted. And so that kind of like level of engagement and the fact that you automatically are reaching an audience of people who have to listen to you, uh, I think just kind of destroyed the P2P um, marketplaces that were there. Uh, and so I think what we're seeing a lot with, with crypto is not getting back into it. I got it, I got really into crypto in, in 2017 um, and I was coming off the failure of a company I had started, um, which was meant to allow freelancers to automatically get paid. And so the idea was they would log their hours in an app, invoice would go out every Monday, or charge Wednesday, pay out Friday. Uh, I, was, I was a freelancer at the time. I was having trouble getting paid. I thought, this is going to be great. Um, there are two issues. One is reaching freelancers is very difficult, but I, I think that the second issue is credit card fees. Just totally killed it. We were bootstrapped. You know, we, we, we weren't venture back. Uh, we probably should have been. <laughs> and, um, we were asking everyone to pay, you know, these 2.9% credit card fees, and that was just devastating. Coming out of that, that was initially why I got really excited about crypto. Was I thought, oh my God, if, if we had done this through crypto, we never would have had this issue. It would have been totally seamless and you could have had these automatic transactions. And you can start imagining a world where, you know, um, if you're like me, your background is in tutoring and you're working with someone, uh, maybe there's a Zoom integration and it automatically is charging them in crypto the moment that you hang up on that call and they've already, you know, signed the contract before. It just opens up all these possibilities for freelancers to get paid, for creatives to get paid. Um, and, that, and that really, I think, was, was my, my initial excitement. Uh, about the whole thing. And, 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 and to a great degree, I think it's, you know, maybe a little bit utopian. Credit cards are pretty hard to disintermediate. Yep. Um, they, they have an incredible fix. Uh, but uh, I think this is still what's really exciting to me is, is, is this idea of, of moving back to a P2P kind of economy that the internet was originally built on. Did the 2017 version of the crypto ecosystem help you to solve any of these problems? No, and the 2021 has not either. <laughs> you know, there there are at least projects out there, you know, that that are 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 trying to do something like this to offer, you know, crypto invoicing, etc. It's 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 still going to be hard, and and I don't know that I have any clarity on, on what will happen. You know, the credit cards effectively bribe consumers, and you know, it's a perfect two-sided marketplace where they're able to give them 1.5% in rewards and then command 3% for merchants. And there's nothing merchants can do about this because they bribed their, their consumer. That's pretty hard to break out of unless credit cards start adopting crypto, which is what it seems like will happen. And I find that a little disappointing, but, but it's, it is hard to imagine another, another alternative too. So yeah, we're, we're, we're still a ways away from my utopia, <laughs> but I'm excited about crypto now for other reasons. Funny you should mention that they, they achieve this position by bribing. Their, their users because the really? only the yeah. only mechanism that has a chance of out bribing companies with balance sheets are protocols that can just rain money on you in the form of tokens and yeah. now we're we're seeing that as kind of the predominant bootstrapping mechanism for uh, for crypto right that's got to be it is like for crypto to work and to beat credit cards people are going to have to get actually excited about transacting through there because they have a stake in that process they're getting some piece of the transactions 
they're, you know, there's, there's something that they're getting out of that, right? And, and, and basically taking a subscription model and turning it over to credit cards to say like, I'm a subscriber to this service. Maybe I'm paying a little bit to get into it, but I'm also getting a lot out of it because I bought these tokens that are gonna be worth more over time. Uh, and so again, I don't, I don't think anyone's working on this. I don't know that now is even the time to work on this, but, but I'm hopeful that that'll be the future. Uh, you read about Visa and MasterCard, their, their model has not changed in 60 years. <laughs> it's, it's really incredible how entrenched they are in a legacy platform that just does, it's, you know, it doesn't make sense, but on the other hand, it makes way too much sense. Yeah. Is your uh, current company, does it have a crypto angle? Are you looking into it or it's a, it's still a solid kind of web two style business? We're, we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're still definitely locked in with Stripe and, you know, automatically running credit cards every month. Um, I will say that like automating a lot of the payment has been a big part of our own success, partly because it just eliminates a lot of overhead uh, as well. Um, if we could move it to crypto long-term, that would be an incredible boon for all of us because we're just absorbing those credit card fees. And, you know, we take a 15% margin 3% with a 15% margin is quite a bit. Um, so yeah, it would, it would, it, it's my hope that there will be a platform that will come out that um, will increasingly allow, you know, um, these kind of daily transactions, but uh, we're going to have to see transaction fees come down a long way uh, be, before that happens. Stripe is like the de facto standard for anyone building web payments today. Um, yeah. Given your experience with it, how would you say um, the, I don't know, the, the, satisfaction is like how happy or satisfied are you with the current status quo um, maybe versus a few years ago prior to Stripe and, and versus maybe a idealized version you could imagine in the future? Oh yeah. No, I mean, I, I think Stripe is a game changer and, and I think, I do think Stripe is actually part of web 3.0, even, even though it's, you know, aligned with the rise of web 2.0, I, I, you know, they, they have a massive investment in stellar, um, whether they do something with that, we'll see. Um, but they've had that since 2017. Uh, so, you know, they're definitely, they have one foot, you know, in crypto, whether or not they actually, you know, go for it. Um, I, yeah, I, I think Stripe, you know, it, it does align with that vision of going back to P2P, right? It, it is a framework for people to be able to automatically directly charge each other. Everything I've described was built um, through Stripe. And, and if we hadn't had Stripe as a company, um, before we would have been in charge of, you know, manually taking care of all these payments, tracking people down, getting them to pay us, you know, um, through through other software systems, maybe, but but we could have automated the entire process the way we do. And that would have meant that we would have had to pay other people. That would have meant that we would have taken a larger margin. That meant we wouldn't have been able to pay creators as well. And that meant we wouldn't have gotten these good people. So so I think, you know, Stripe is, Stripe is a total game changer in being able to build a successful business. But I do think it's it's a transition, right? I mean, I don't know what Stripe's own take home is. I don't think it's actually that much percentage wise. Like they're giving up most of those fees to credit card companies as well. And if you call them and you try to negotiate with them, they usually will if they can. Sometimes, I mean, when we talk to them, a lot of our clients use American Express and they told us that they were just taking the loss because American Express is more than 2.9%. So yeah. it's in Stripe's interest to get away from credit cards as well. Like I'm sure Stripe would love to move to crypto because it would allow that, you know, right now they're, they're also, I think in some ways being held hostage by, by credit card companies and having to give up a, a huge amount to them. Um, I just wish they're more proactive. Yeah, no, I just wish Stripe was a little more, pro more proactive. Like they, yeah. they started looking into crypto four years ago and then they haven't done anything, you know, with it since, which maybe it wasn't quite, yeah, maybe it wasn't quite ready last time around. And now we have just so much more powerful, like money Legos through DeFi. 
Um, right. Maybe they'll kind of wake up and have a second second run at it. And their business model really is, as you say, since they you know pass on most of the fees, it's not really to add a margin to pay to to the uh, payment to the to the fees per se. They, they, they might add a little bit, but it's really kind of to do all these value added services through software. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And 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 to be, I don't know, it, it's like they're increasingly no code. Also, uh, mm-hmm. they're not totally there yet, but it's definitely I think part of like a no code payments where anyone is going to be able to set up any type of payment system with anyone else in the world. And um, that sounds so simple, but it's, it's really powerful. Bern Hobart had a, had a great piece on this, uh, I think two weeks ago, you know, and just saying this infrastructure sounds so obvious, but, but it has never existed before. Right. Right. Okay. Let's talk about your piece, user-generated finance. Walk us through the high level thesis. What, what did, what were you, what message were you trying to kind of uh, portray? Um, how does it pertain to crypto today? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in, I guess, with the, the provocative part, then we can work our way back to, to see how we got there. Um, and, and that's that, you know, if you are a retail investor, um, you, you don't necessarily value stocks the same way that you would if you're an institutional investor. Um, and that, that seems obvious enough, right? Like, of course, retail investors don't have giant DCF models that they're using to try to evaluate. But, but part of my point is it doesn't necessarily make sense for them to have those kinds of models either, you know, even if they could. Because if you're a retail investor, you, you, you are not holding you know, some controlling share of the company. You are not expecting to directly get profit from the company unless it's in the form of dividends. As long as you're not buying you know, a, a dividend giving stock, yep. then how do you value this? Because you're not getting any cash flows from it, right? And so you might say, oh, I should use discounted cash flow, you know, as a way to value the stock. But the only reason you would say this is because everyone else uses discounted cash flow to value the stock. It, it, for you personally, uh, the, you're not going to see any of those cash flows, right? You're just buying this thing to say, oh, it's worth this because everyone else says it's worth it. So yeah. I think retail investors exist in this much more kind of, you know, necessarily a rational zone um, where they, you know, there is no way to, to fix a price for these except what everyone else says it should be worth. Yep. And, and once you make that leap, then you can start to make a lot of others because then at that point you can say, well, what is the ways that everyone else is, is evaluating it? And if you're on crypto Twitter, no one is using DCF models. Everyone is using you know, technical analysis and that starts at your know, stock quits or you know, Wall Street bets, whatever it is, that, that starts to be your, your way of evaluating the stock. And once enough it, you know, it doesn't have to be everyone who owns the stock evaluating this way. Once there's a, enough retail investors who say, actually, screw DCF, our new way of evaluating this is, you know, comparing the stock prices to 17th century weather patterns, like, and that's actually the best way that we can evaluate the price. Once enough people have done that, then everyone else has to follow. And I, I think you really saw that with, um, you know, with, with the GameStop saga, where it turned out that actually retail investors were not the majority of people trading during these, you know, crazy three weeks. It was mostly institutional investors who are trading, some getting very rich, some losing money. Um, and, you know, I think the immediate reaction to that was to say, oh, you know, as usual, the retail investor didn't make anything, the institutional investor got away with a lot. And that's true. But at the same time, we have to think, well, the institutional investors were forced to play the game that the retail investors set, right? The rules were no longer being written by these institutional investors, at least for that three-week period. They were going to have, they, they were having to use other models to evaluate what this thing was going to be worth in, in this crazy bubble. Uh, and, and so that's, you know, th- that's, I guess, the seed of, of, of what I would call like user, user generated finance, which is what happens when you decentralize even the pricing power of, of, of stocks, equities, et cetera, and you give that over to retail users. 
And, and then we can get into stuff like, you know, uh, governance tokens where it's like, well, why are they being valued at all? <laughs> These don't seem to have any financial value at all. And yet, if we think, well, we've given all this power to retail investors and they're using these other ways of evaluating it, then maybe we can start to say it does have value. And the final thing I would just say is, you know, if, if this all sounds like absurd and, you know, an intellectual exercise to say, well, why should we give value to something because everyone else gave value to it? That's money, like generally, right? <laughs> like that's what money is, is we agree that it has value. because it's Subjective value. value. That's right. Right. So at some point you do have to play the game if enough other people are playing it. And, and the big question we have now is, are there enough retail investors playing this for long enough that the game will actually change? Or is this just what happens every time there's a bubble? Um, and, I, and, and I don't have a clear answer for that. I, I think you could probably make the case either way. Yeah, I think um, if we go, go back to your earlier point, which is, you know, how do things get valued uh, traditionally? And, and if you open any serious finance book or if you... Um, get a CFA and you learn about discounted cash flows and, and that's called an intrinsic valuation. Right. The keyword there is intrinsic, meaning you don't rely, you don't have to rely on um, the market or other participants to uh, produce the value of the thing you hold. And in theory, um, maybe this is like, I guess, more the norm in the old economy prior to tech, right? When it was the norm for companies to issue dividends, uh, essentially return the excess cash flows to shareholders. When that happens, you don't need necessarily other people to make the stock price go a certain way. Uh, let's say you bought some share, uh, it, it's $10 and every year it issues a dollar of dividend. Um, yep. You're quite confident so long as that dividend holds in 10 years, you will collect $10 worth of dividends and, you know, not, not um, worrying about time value just yet, that will basically uh, pay you back the, the, mm -hmm. the amount in shares you have. So it's intrinsic in the sense that you can close your eyes, that the world can go to hell and you can still get your money back and earn that, you know, 10 PE of, of return from, from that stock. Now, fast forward to kind of today, um, the world is kind of, because of tech and other factors is, is growing exponentially um, because there's so much room for growth and such seemingly unlimited growth in tech companies are very incentivized to invest in the future. So uh, essentially the, the there's uh, the best performing companies are the ones that don't generate excess cash flows that, that then get distributed to shareholders because they are themselves the most effective ways um, to reinvest that capital, right? right? So all earnings or excess cash flow is retained. It gets reinvested into engineers, Google search ads, data centers, um, and the shareholder is is holding uh, this share, what we would call token in crypto, um, that doesn't produce any cash flows. And then it's like, okay, then where? What is the what is what is the intrinsic value of this thing? And then people will say, oh, well, there's still cash flow to the firm. Um, the cash flow accrues to equity. But that's definitely a bit more abstracted. You can't get that, right, as a shareholder. That, that's like captured by management and the board. And, and like in the company's balance sheet, you can't get that. Yes, if the company gets sold, you can get a one-time liquidation event. But that's, that's also not dependable, right? You're not, you're not buying Coca-Cola because you think it's going to get sold. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Coca-Cola probably has a dividend, but you know, I don't know what you're buying, maybe Salesforce or something. There's no bigger buyer for Microsoft as, a, as like a SaaS company or something, right? So um, now we're thinking, okay, then the valuation, you have to kind of imagine that 
in theory, at maturity, this company would would um, stop growing and it would issue a dividend. That would require some kind of governance procedure. Um, of course, shareholders in common stock typically have um, governance rights or voting rights. So you could theoretically, you could make the argument that you know holders can vote in favor of um, issuing dividends uh, at the company's maturity, and then it would become a cash flow bearing asset and it would have value. So, but um, short of these kind of jumps in logic, basically more and more so stock is becoming more of a, especially tech stocks, growth stocks are becoming more of an abstract entity. They don't have dependable intrinsic value because they don't generate, you know, any, any kind of cash flows to the shareholder. And you're really on increasingly depending on um, people don't buy these things to get the dividends. People buy these things because they think it will go up. Right. And the way Right. The way it goes up, uh, you know, you know, Graham would say that in the short term, the, the, the stock market is a voting machine. In the long term, it's a weighing machine. It weighs how much it's worth. I, I would kind of, I like I kind of, kind of mess with that and said, like, yeah, in the short term, it's a voting machine in the future. In, in the long term, it's a voting machine in the future, because once you get to the future, it's the present again. And you're just what you're just voting on popularity at that moment in time. It's like. You could argue it's never a weighing machine. It's just constantly a voting machine. And, and it's a voting machine about the future too. Like, like, I don't think we can underestimate the ways that, you know, like the ways that venture capital has evaluated deals, um, which is, is never to say, oh, well, clearly this is worth $10 million or $50 million because of the cash flows. Venture's never done this, right? They've, they've always said, no, this thing could transform the world and create a whole new market. And then that'll be incredibly valuable, right? It's not even about capturing the TAM, it's about expanding the TAM. Uh, and I mean, this is one reason I was excited to talk because I, I think within public markets, the only place I know that's doing that is really ARC and saying, you know, like, let's think about value here, not, you know, in terms of what this is going to bring in next year, but how it's actively going to transform the world. And in doing that, play a part in which, you know, of, of the entire new market that doesn't even yet exist. Uh, and that's a fun game to play. <laughs> it's a riskier one. But if you're right, you, you don't have to be right, you know, even 95% of the time. You can start having the venture model of just being right 5% of the time. But if you're really, really right that 5% of the time, you're going to have incredible, incredible returns um, because you predicted the future, right? And so, so that's, that's where it becomes cool, where, where yeah, it starts to become a, 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 you know, a waiting machine about what you think the future will look like. Uh, as well. Uh, and there's a question, you know, does it get performative? Like if enough people agree, this is going to be the future and they're willing to put their money on it, does it now have to be the future? Because all these people invested in that as well. Exactly. So insofar as like there are two mental models, weighing and voting. Voting is basically, um, call it how uh, mimetic is your stock narrative, right? Like if you get a Tesla where it's basically just um, you know, most of the Tesla shareholder base is not doing intrinsic valuations. They're basically voting for popularity. Um, so it's like the more popular, the more you can get people bottoms up to adopt to your narrative, the more votes you get. And that drives up the company's valuation. Right. Whereas weighing, of course, is, is an essential part of that because the, the, the revenue and the whatever growth rates you generate is the kind of fundamentals of the business. Um, and that is like the, the bread and butter of, of how um, you can help influence uh, the voters. Like you can say, oh, Tesla doubled its shipments in China or, or, or Europe this year. And that can give you, you know, more voters. So it's finance is definitely intersecting with, um, um, I mean, it's always had a bit of a people mania factor. But now with Twitter and, and uh, you know, podcasts and, and YouTube, like it is, it is not only just um, people passively listening 
to these narratives and then buying um, or trading these stocks, um, like starting from GME, GameStop, we're now seeing basically grassroots shareholder activism, which right. is like an entirely new phenomenon. No, I, I, think, it's, I think it's really interesting because I, I always think about it that, you know, in some ways being on Twitter, you know, being in social media is, is, is similar to casino finance. It's like, uh, you know, Packy McCormick had a great piece about this last week, but you're like pulling the slot and saying, how many likes am I going to get? How, you know, how many retweets, how far is this piece going to go? Uh, and it, you're almost betting, right? And you're taking bets against other people. And, you know, there's, there's a whole kind of finance aspect to it. But it's interesting if you could also flip it and say, actually, finance itself has become more like social media, uh, in which it's, it's buying for voters or it's buying, you know, for what it would consider likes, which is people buying its shares by doing all of these promotional campaigns to its fans uh, as well. And, you know, I, of course... I think if you look historically at bubbles, there's some truth to that in all the bubbles, right? That you always have bubbles full in retail investors um, who are just looking to get rich quick and thinking, you know, can I bet on something that's, that's going to increase the value? You know, you have the story from 1929 of the uh, shoe shiner, right? Who's, who's giving stock tips. You have this amazing story that Robert Schiller tells in like 1999, where like the guys making the chicken shawarma have CNBC on and they're talking about options. And it's like, that's how you know it's a bubble, right? Is it like, it's just pulled in everyone into this, you know, uh, you know, speculative fervor. But at the same time, you know, with crypto, with social media today, I think you can accept it's a bubble while still saying something is fundamentally shifted here. Like we are moving towards a retail model of, of finance and we are moving towards users controlling the narrative. Even, even if there's going to be a long back and forth over in a, in a bloody battle of this over the next 20 years, yeah. Um, yeah. Something, something is actually changing here. I think one big difference with, um, I think why maybe investing uh, today is better than uh, casino or uh, doing the lottery is, A, the odds are not mathematically stacked against you, right? Like yeah. um, in a casino, you're mathematically metered to lose. Yeah, um, you're playing against the house, right? Yeah. And here you're just playing against each other. P2P betting is always better than casino betting, right? <laughs> Betting yeah. in a, uh, it's going over to your friend's house to bet, but there's a lot mm -hmm. of stuff in, in, in the house. Um, but but the most important thing this round is is um, the fact that users have the ability to alter the odds in their favor. Right. This right. Like GameStop, like uh, Wall Street Bets is basically a clan where retail investors with pennies, you know, each can get together and create a narrative. Um, and create momentum that ultimately then feeds algos to to feed the the, the 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 trading momentum in their favor, and then can eventually get get themselves to appear on CNBC, and then can suck it. like they can create their own reflexivity, um, and that's a very powerful force. I think that combines multiple kind of like primordial human forces together. You know, the the need for community, the desire to take risk. Um, um, uh, and, and kind of the greed for outcomes. Like multiple things come together to fuel this kind of mania, which is why it's so intense, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think that, that again goes to the issues with, you know, classical DCF valuation because DCF assumes that the way you value a stock is descriptive. It's, it's, it's looking at the past it's projecting that into the future to say, what has this thing always been? And, if, and, and, and to be fair, if you are a retail investor who doesn't have a lot of say in stock prices or crypto prices, it might make sense to, to try to think of you know, those kinds of terms. But if you really have a lot of power, 
you stop thinking about descriptive valuations and you start thinking about performative valuations. You start thinking, no, I, I don't, I should be looking at the past and what's happened in the past to determine the value. I should be thinking about my own impact and how that can change the future by, by making enough investment. And I mean, you read the stories of like Bill Ackman and, you know, Carl Icahn, you know, over like Herbalife, where I don't know, you know, the story, but it's a, uh, it just this like crazy event between these two guys who hated each other and, you know, Bill Ackman was going to short it. And Carl Icahn just personally had this, you know, vendetta against Bill Ackman decided to, you know, just jack up the prices just to destroy him. <laughs> uh, and you just have these two billionaires going at it, you know, for their own fun. Um, but, but yeah, you, what you're essentially saying is, okay, these guys have always had access to do that. They can always manipulate the prices just by investing, right? Like we, we should democratize this <laughs> and it gets dangerous. It's casino finance, but at the same time, uh, it would be unfair to say that only billionaires should have this power <laughs> exactly. to manipulate the market. Exactly. Um, let's, let's take a look at one of the core ideas, which is like, okay, so we have today's stocks, non-dividend bearing stocks are, are basically governance, call it voting shares, um, that are highly influenced by their, um, call it narrative and pros prospect for growth. That's the, the primary valuation mechanism, right? You read yeah. the you know sixty page sell side reports on you know what's a new software company supposed to worth, and and it's basically like some some the current revenue with some um, growth rates attached, kind of yeah. more or less pulled out of thin air, and then yeah. an arbitrary price to sales attached, more or less. Yeah you know, kind of pulled out of thin air. They, they do some comps against existing things, but it's basically designed to justify some future share price. It's pretty arbitrary. This is why we like Wall Street bets, right? Is like, they're also pulling prices out of thin air, but they know it and they're aware of it and they're open about it. There's no con. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. But if you look at token, uh, if you look at crypto and, and the big question, you know, for people who don't invest in crypto, um, but who invest in equities, the big yeah. kind of mental barrier they have is why does crypto thingies have value? Um, what is your way of like, if you have a conversation with a friend, they get stuck on that. What, what yeah. do you say to them? Yeah. Well, first of all, it depends on the project, right? And it depends on the nature of that token, and what it's doing. Um, so, you know, if it's a governance token versus if it's actually supposed to serve as money, you know, I, I think was it uh, Vitalik has this like amazing line a year or two ago where he's like, actually people want Ethereum to be money. And what that means is we weren't even thinking about it being money beforehand. Uh, this is the first time this might actually serve as money, right? Um, it, it's really going to depend on, on, on how you... How many categories are there if we're going to go through this? Um, if you go through Ooh. kind of coin market cap, top, I don't know, 50, uh, generally, what are the buckets, would you say? Yeah, good question. You got to help me with this one. So I think stable coins, right? That one's clear. So call it the ones that basically say we try to act like a currency. So anything from Bitcoin, Litecoin, stable yep. coin. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah, no, right, right, right. Those ones. Yeah. So you have you have money currency, right? Would be one. Um, finance ecosystem, I would say, is another one. Um, I'm dividing. I guess I'm dividing off like an Ethereum and a Solana from a Bitcoin. Um, if that makes sense, you you could just say they're both money, and that makes sense. But I think Solana and Ethereum are doing something a lot more interesting, right? Which is that they're they're creating an entire ecosystem for other projects that can all trade with each other as well. Um, and so that that's a little bit more complicated than call, than it, call it level one um, smart contract chains. Yeah. Uh, they're, yeah. they're more yeah. analogous to like software platforms like a Windows or AWS. Yeah, they're the operating system for uh, for crypto, right? Yeah, so those are your operating systems. Um, 
Yeah, I'm trying to draw the analogy all the way through. <laughs> what would Bitcoin be? Bitcoin is like, uh, I don't know. Is it is it like your computer? Or is it like your email? <laughs> it's money. Um, yeah. And and yeah, uh, governance tokens are are a big one, which I think we'll come back to because that's that's what I was mainly writing about. Was was this really weird question of how how we say that governance tokens have any value? Um, and then there's a lot of projects, right? That are based, you know, around, you know, within these ecosystems and, um, those can take all different forms, right? They can be stuff like Helium and Akash, uh, they can be, um, yeah, there's a lot of different options for, you know, what, what these individuals, right, might be, um, and they might be, you know, creating creator tokens like Rally does, um, they might be able, you know, proposing like a decentralized storage system like Filecoin does. Um, but, but there's different models for, you know, I guess just decentralized platforms that have their own token um, that you ostensibly would use within the ecosystem. It's not just a governance token like Ocean. Ocean would be a good one to use here. Ocean allows P2P research to be sold. So if you're a researcher, you can put it on Ocean. Someone else can basically, you know, buy it from you using the Ocean token. Um, that's an interesting one to me because I think it's a super valuable project that does something really fascinating, but it's not totally clear why you need to use the ocean token. When you, when you, say, use- when you say research, do you, are you talking yeah. like research papers, like archive? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is like institutional research, right? Like, so, so, so it's, it, it, it's, it's a great thing because you, you, you know, traditionally the Harvard, you know, MIT, Stanford researchers you know, develop their own research funded by their university in their lab, and then they never want to share it with anyone. It's proprietary. And so, you know, allowing more open access to those resources can be a game changer for science, a game changer for other researchers um, to really share it. But a lot of times they're not going to want to do that unless they can get paid for their work, which is understandable. So it basically is treating, you know, scientists like creators, right? And saying part of the creator economy is we, we need to pay scientists as well and, and researchers. So they can put it on Ocean Protocol and others, others can buy it, um, you know, this research from them uh, using the Ocean, the Ocean token. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting one because the Ocean token does clearly serve a financial purpose there, but it's also not clear why you would need to use that instead of Ethereum, like, right? That's like Dentacoin, but for papers. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like it's it's a great project, but it, you know again, is there any is it getting a project? There's what? Is it getting any traction? Are people actually buying papers on this thing? Uh, yeah, I think so. The marketplace is a little difficult to use, and for for me personally, uh, you know, it's like they list like the top projects that are out there, but it's you know they're also all niche. So like the top project is you know something for astrophysicists <laughs> you know, if you're not an astrophysicist you probably don't need to see that there's probably a lot of ui work that needs to be done on this um but it's promising and and, and i think it is what i really like about ocean is that they're offering something you couldn't get before crypto um, it really took crypto to get, get this kind of use case of being able to have you know open source sharing of research as well. Yeah. Does it solve the, um, cause when you submit to nature or, you know, physics, astrophysics journal or something like that, the review, the, the peer review and, and the editorial review is kind of the key part of the value prop to show quality. Does ocean do anything for that? I don't think so. No, that's, that's, that's also right. Where, where you get into those questions of how much decentralization do you want? <laughs> um, because right. You might, you might like, want to <laughs> I feel like there's a great, surely there's got to be a great like game there where you can if they're if they're thoughtful about it they should create some incentive system to get people um 
oh, I don't know, to, to, uh, to review, to basically incentivize people to peer review each other's work on Ocean and get rewarded Ocean tokens. And so create some kind of like, you know, kind of like how Chainlink, you have like a marketplace for, for, the, for the work itself. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a great idea. And um, yeah, like any, any, any really good crypto product should be incentivizing users to engage in it, right? right. As well. And I don't know that Ocean is, is totally doing that. So again, I love, I love it, but, but I do feel like the, and I stand to be corrected. I do feel like the token is searching, you know, it's a solution in search of a problem. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's very common. Yeah, right. So, okay. so should we talk governance tokens? Is that, is that the helpful sure. one? Sure. I, I guess just to kind of, re, uh, kind of recap, if, if, you know, if you're trying to make sense of crypto and you just look at the kind of top 100 projects, I think what we just went through is basically there are three broad categories. Yeah. There's a bucket that basically aim to be um, aims to be money, and that could be Bitcoin, XRP, uh, all the stable coins like Tether, USDC, and, and UST. Um, so that's a huge bucket. And stable coins are massive, massive category. Um, so, and, and that's one. Number two is kind of call it uh, layer one chains or, or like um, base level chains or, or like things that provide a, a smart contract platform. So these things are, these are things like Ethereum, um, Cardano, uh, Solana, um, and, uh, you know, uh, what else we got, we got, I'm sure there near, I've been here there. Yeah. Cos- yeah. And, and, and I mean, I think you could probably make a case for, you know, Polkadot, the Cosmos. Exactly. Polkadot, Cosmos. Right. There's a bit of caveat. Some of those aim to be like a connective tissue between blockchains, but call it basically all those are base layer things to enable applications to be built on top. They're the infrastructure. Exactly. Right. Core infrastructure. And then the third category is probably the most numerous are the applications that are built on top of those things. So these are distributed applications or dApps. Uh, they're otherwise just called projects for the most part. And th- this is everything from Uniswap um, uh, to, um, to uh, I guess, uh, God, there's so many, PancakeSwap. Yeah, Swap, um, et cetera. You know, yeah. and Compound, yeah. Aave, things like that. Yeah, you, you make me think maybe, maybe the simplest way of saying that there's platforms, there's products, and there's money, right? And for this to have a successful city, <laughs> you need all. You need the infrastructure, then you need uh, the actual projects going on inside the buildings, and then you need a way for everything to transact, right, in the economy. Exactly. Well, exactly. So this is, this is a little civilization that you're building in the top 100 coins. Yes. The key question for an investor is when you buy the token or the yeah. coin, what does it actually give you? Because it's right. this one of the this is the essential question um, that I think is not directly answered. It's just it's far too easy to buying them buying any of these feels exactly the same as buying stock. But when yep. you're buying stock, you have literally legal you know call it violence enforced guarantees of what you're getting. But when yep. you buy stuff in the coin market cap top one hundred, you could be getting real. St- you could be getting concrete value or you could be getting literally nothing in a, in a right. sense. And right. that's the part that I think uh, is interesting and forces the question of, you know, what is value and, and what does it mean? So maybe the most illustrative example is if you were to buy um, Uniswap tokens today versus yeah. SushiSwap tokens today, right? Yeah. What, what, what um, David, is the key? They sound the same. In fact, one is a clone of the other. Uh, maybe just a little brief background on how they came to be, what, what they do, and why buying those two tokens are completely different things today. Yeah, uh, I might I might let you answer this one because I don't I don't want to claim to be an expert in, in Uniswap and SushiSwap in particular. 
the, the quick backstory, right, is that um, Uniswap came first. It was very popular. Lots of people are using it. And SushiSwap basically cloned it uh, and said, but we're going to have a token, you know, in, involved as well that you're going to be using uh, in these transactions. So that became popular because then people, you know, want to speculate on the token and, and, and give it value. Yeah. Um, as well. Although I think this is where you're going to correct me. I think SushiSwap's token does actually serve serve some function that Uniswap's doesn't. Um, but I'll let, I'll let you handle that part, James. Um, Uniswap responds and says, oh shit, we need a token. <laughs> like this is clearly like, you know, a big advantage for, for what investors want. Turns in out system. people want to speculate. <laughs> right. People want to speculate. So they basically airdrop, uh, you know, these Uniswap tokens in uh, the wallets of anyone who's used it, which is brilliant. Right, because uh, for, for for me, it says a couple things. Um, one is it says we're going to avoid the ICO problem and you know SEC issues because we're not gaining anything from this. We're just dropping it, you know, uh, com- completely in. Um, but the other thing that's interesting is it's it's almost an admission that this thing has no financial value. Like the fact that it was just given away for free uh, is already kind of telling you like this is just you know um, a construct, if that makes sense. For you to use, and then of course it serves no value within the ecosystem. You don't use Uniswap tokens; uh, they're not <laughs> they're not serving any purpose now. But now there there is a way to value it, which I'll get to in a second. Um, but you you have to make a few speculative leaps to to get there. Um, do you want to fill in the sushi swap part? Sure, sure. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, so Uniswap started off as a well. First of all, what does Uniswap do? Right, Uniswap is a decentralized exchange for Ethereum-based tokens, or these ERC-20 tokens. Um, you, you, if, you know, people probably remember 2017, 2018 ICO mania. So uh, Ethereum basically became a platform upon which you can easily issue uh, value, or not equity, but tokens in the form of these packaged little smart contracts. They're all the same. They're called ERC-20. Um, and they basically act like stock, but for crypto projects, right? And that became very popular. Uh, and, and because of that, there are many kinds of ERC-20 tokens or projects um, based on Ethereum. And people want to exchange them, right? Normally, you exchange them for Ether, and then you, you go from Ether to another price. So you go from A to Ether and the Ether to Project B. Um, Uniswap is basically a super simple interface with two dropdowns. You put in the token you have and you put in the token you want, and it exchanges them for you. Um, and the two key things about Uniswap that's interesting is A, it's, it's a decentralized exchange. So it's not a company. Well, it is, there's a company, but it's, for the most part, it's just software on the internet. It doesn't have any, it's not- Automated market maker. Automated right. marketplace. It's like, behaves like Schwab, but you don't have to ever have to log in to use it. It's just literally like a software widget uh, on the internet that, that you can use. Um, and, the uh, first great UI, I think, in crypto. Like, yeah. it's the first time that crypto has ever felt easy to use was Uniswap, right? Yeah. And that's, and you, you, know, man, you, can't, you can't say enough about the value of that. Exactly. <laughs> and everyone has copied it since, just like how everyone's, you know, copied the timeline after social media um, kind of crystallized that kind of UI format. The two dropdowns, give the token you want, uh, give the token you have, and it will do the swap for you. And it doesn't have a um, centralized uh, kind of a, uh, market maker like like um, Coinbase or, or uh, Binance. This is all done with community provided liquidity. So in order for Uniswap to work, there has to be you know supply of the two tokens you want to exchange, and basically it created incentive structure of people saying, hey, if you have token A and token B, deposit them into this A B token pool, 
And every time someone um, exchanges these tokens using a Uniswap, you will get 0.3% of the transaction fee. So it, yeah. out of thin air, it conjured up essentially a stock exchange um, with no regulations uh, requirements um, because it's you know not traditional equity. It's just these you know made up ERC twenty tokens. Um, but because there are thousands of these projects and people want liquidity and want to be able to trade them, uh, and the centralized exchanges like Coinbase and Binance cannot list all of them because listing one project is an entire like it's someone's job to take it through the whole life cycle. That's like to to clear it to to go through compliance. That's a whole job, right? But when it's not a company, when it's just software on the internet, it's just literally you could create, you know, penny swap tomorrow, and then you can it can appear on Uniswap. So it created the, this first decentralized exchange that's very very popular. Um, it was funded through traditional venture. Like one big difference between twenty twenty era, twenty twenty one era kind of um, crypto projects, Ethereum projects, and the twenty seventeen era is. Uh, in in this era, they are, you know, very most of the time that the, the project itself gets bootstrapped initially from just traditional good old venture capital. Um, once it reaches it, once it reaches a kind of product working product definition. Oh no, Uniswap in this case was actually funded by the Ethereum Foundation. I think um, it did get venture funding later on. I think uh, so. It had both, but it didn't. It did not do a token sale where it just wrote a white paper and say buy our stuff. Uh, just throw money at us, uh, even though we may or may not work. He basically got some funding um, through credibility and through closed sources, launched the project, gained adoption with users, you know, lots of users swapping tokens on this. Uh, and it was so popular. And because it's open source, it was cloned by a, by a, by a per developer or a developer group called Chef Nomi. Um, basically just took Uniswap, copy and paste, call it Sushi Swap. You know, Uni is also a type of sushi. Um, so... And, and SushiSwap came online. Now, why would anyone use this clone? Well, SushiSwap created this incentive that if you use SushiSwap, you get sushi tokens. It comes with its own yeah. currency, right? And people are you know, universally bribable and nowhere more so than crypto. So it drained a bunch of liquidity providers providing liquidity to Uniswap, moved over to SushiSwap. Uh, and now it, it, basically, it basically stole market share by, by bribing people. And Uniswap, you know, in turn responded by saying, we will also have a token. Uh, yeah. And that's kind of how and we no have- no longer be open source either. We're, we're going to hide our code for the period of a few years so no one can copy us. So, right. So, so the, you know, the, the pure idealism of the open source ethos is also yeah. kind of being tarnished a little bit. Um, but one big difference with the SushiSwap token, um, well, they, they, got it, they got the token first. They launched the token first. Uh, but one- kind of uh, uh, key thing is that for to, when you use SushiSwap, the 0.3% the, the is, is what it costs to swap tokens on both of these. But of the 0.3%, SushiSwap retains 0.05% of that. So about 16% of the whole transaction fee. Um, uh, and it retains that for itself and gives liquidity providers 0.25%. So it's like 0.5 for itself, 0.25 for the liquidity providers. And what happens to that 0.5? That 0.5% is, um, is uh, given back to sushi, sushi swap token holders. So yeah. it's basically capturing a percentage of fees for itself as if a company has a take rate on the GMV and then it distributes it like 
Uh, in a normal company, it would distribute it as a dividend, as a, you know, just, just um, issue it out to shareholders or a buyback stock. Um, in Sushi's example, it's almost a bit of both. It takes the, um, the fee that it collects is 0.5%, buys Sushi tokens off the market. So it kind of creates, um, it's almost like a stock buyback and then airdrops the Sushi tokens to Sushi stakers. Um, so people who already own and have staked the Sushi token. And this basically creates genuine cash flow for yep. anyone who owns Sushi swap tokens. And now you, it's basically a dividend bearing stock, if you will. Yep. Um, and, and as a result, you actually get like, you get like, yes, incremental and continuous cash flow um, from yep. owning this token. So it's no longer just blue sky value, like um, narratives. This is basically you can use actually a dividend uh, discount evaluation for something as new as a, as a ERC 20 project that is a clone of someone else's project with sushi swap. And I made this kind of joke on Twitter. That's like sushi swap has distributed more cash to its token holders in its one less than a year of history than Amazon has done in almost three decades. <laughs> so it's kind of a bit of a troll, but it's also making the point that, hey, if you want to say that crypto is all speculation, there's no intrinsic value, it actually doesn't apply in a lot of cases. Here is a project that literally gives you cash flows. Make, make DCF great again, right? It's like, <laughs> Way. Um, yeah, and, and I think for Uniswap, you, you basically would evaluate it the same way, which is part of the point, right? Uniswap has said that they're going to offer, I think, 0.05% to token holders of all transaction volume in the future. Um, so if you say that's true, then you can evaluate the same way. The issue is they haven't done that. They've just said they're going to. And so then the question is, well, how much of a speculative leap is this? How probabilistic is that, you know? Do I make the bet that they're going to go this way or not? Do I factor that into my pricing uh, as as well? The you know the the way I would usually try to the way I've been thinking about it, and, and James, you can tell me what you think here, um, is there's kind of two models for how we move from equity from from equity pricing to, to token pricing, and and one is what we just did, and I think it's the simpler one, and that's to say, look, we start off a lot of the times in crypto projects. A lot of times we're starting off with these centralized entities, right? That are run by a few people who have full control. But if they're slowly going to turn over control to the token holders, right? Through pro proof of stake, through giving them transaction rewards, you know, and, and over time, it will be the token holders who have actual governance of the system, uh, make the calls, right? Make the code uh, and actually get paid for it. Then you've moved from completely centralized to completely decentralized. And that's a nice move from equity to tokens. And you look at the deals that are usually made, you know, when VCs are offered the chance to invest in crypto platforms, usually there's some sort of warrant, right, that they get where they're allowed to buy, you know, they're allowed to get as many tokens um, later on as they bought an equity, whatever the, you know, equivalent uh, amount is. And that makes perfect sense because you can think either the equity has value or the tokens have value, but it's not both, right? Because either you're centralized, in which case, you are valuing yourself based on equity and the tokens don't mean anything. They're just ornamental, right? Or you fully decentralize in the way I described where you've given over your entire protocol to your users through tokens. And in that case, you've moved from centralization to decentralization and you've moved from equity to tokens. And in that case, the tokens have value and the equity has no value because no one controls this company. No one owns it. No one can sell it, right? It's, it's owned entirely by the users. So there, there should, you know, in theory, be this, you know, transition from equity to tokens, in which tokens basically just are the decentralized form of equity, right? And when we're doing the pricing evaluations that we just did, 
for Uniswap, you know, for, for, for SushiSwap, that's basically what we're saying is that like, let's assume that this has become fully decentralized, that the equity is no longer going to mean anything. Uh, and instead it's the, the tokens that will mean something. So that's, that's what I would call model one, <laughs> which is the way we're using. Yep. And what I'm really interested in though, is actually what I might call model two, which is a more speculative model. So should I, should I talk about that one too? Yeah, sure. But model one is very interesting. I've, 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 I didn't realize that explicitly is, is kind of the flow, but that makes complete sense. Well, it um, isn't always. That's the problem. That's, that's what it should be in theory, but that doesn't mean it's what it actually is. Right. I guess when things work out, that's kind of how things go, right? If, well, and, and the thing is, like, people assume crypto means decentralized, but that's often not true. Like, a lot of these protocols are using crypto and they have no desire to be decentralized uh, <laughs> at any point. So, yeah, there's also this question of, like, will they become decentralized? Are they decentralized? Right. The best projects, though, really do aim at decentralization. And they are I hope so. Moving I think so. Right. <laughs> yeah, I certainly, I, I certainly think that that's right. Um, at least right now. For, for I mean, sure. Uniswap, for example, after they did, they... Um, so it started off as you know venture funded as well as uh, kind of Ethereum Foundation funded, um, but after they it, you know after they saw the success of SushiSwap and they realized that they need kind of basically their users demand a token if they will and yeah. you know, give the people bread. So they launched a token. Uh, they, they launched a token, one billion tokens. Two thirds of that um, was basically given to the community or is reserved for the community. And a third is basically to team and, and investors. So instantly with that one move, it became community owned, so to speak. And we, we, were, we were talking earlier about Visa MasterCard. It's the exact same move, right? Visa MasterCard says, hey, we're going to take 3% from merchants, but we, we will give 1.5, 2% of that in, you know, in rewards to our users in order to bribe them to use us. Yep. And SushiSwap basically is making the same bet, which is to say, we're going to take a certain amount of, you know, transaction volume, and then we're, we're going to split it 50-50 with our users in order to bribe them to, to use our platform. So some things in finance, you know, don't, don't totally change. <laughs> so funny. I, I was thinking like, it's such a shame that share um, companies don't airdrop shares to their users like Facebook or like, so back in the day of yeah. all the protocols competing against Facebook, none of them could compete using the mechanisms, mechanism of if you use, you know, new Facebook, new Facebook uh, network, we will airdrop you new Facebook shares. Like they, that mechanism didn't exist, but right. actually you're right. The, the credit card holders are the OG implementers of the, the airdrop <laughs> and their airdrop comes in the form of just real cash, right? It's like, we'll literally airdrop you American express rewards, uh, dollars into your, uh, into your balance. That's, that's well, it's, it's even better than that, right? Because when it's reward points, then that's money that's still sitting in their account until you cash it out. So oh, I always take the cash. They can earn interest on it in the meantime. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> they're also making lots of money off their money that they owe you because you haven't cashed it out immediately as well. But yeah, I think you're right. That was, that was the original airdrop was, was Visa bribing its users. And, and look, it's not the worst thing. Like companies maybe should have to bribe their users uh, to get them to use it to say like, you also deserve a piece of this. You're the ones building our platform. You're the ones who are making, you know, us have all this money and power. Like you deserve something for it, you know, as well. Okay. So that's model one. What is model two? Okay, so model, model two is a, the, the more complicated one I've been playing with over, over the past week, so you can tell me what you think. I, I think model two is it, um, basically comparing this question of equity to tokenization to the question of collateral versus loan. So, so let me break that down. Um, 
there's a lot of protocols uh, like synthetics, for example, right? In, in crypto where, or Aave would be a simpler one. Uh, you put up a bunch of collateral and then you're able to take out a loan. So for example, I put up hundred Ethereum, hundred Ether, right? On Aave. And then I can take out a loan in USDT for the equivalent of 50% of this. So that might be great for me if I think the price is gonna keep going up um, because then I have actual cash I can go out and spend. In the meantime, I haven't had to sell my ether. I have, I'm not subjected to taxes on that, right? And in the meantime, uh, I'm able just to, you know, take out my loan and go use that real money off in the universe. Um, of course, there are interest fees and of course the price could go down. So I wouldn't recommend this strategy um, as, as some would, but, but this is an option, right? And this is something that we see all the time. And then you have more complicated versions of it, like synthetics where, you know, you, you put up the synthetics token and then you're getting their SUSD, you know, in return where they're actually minting money for you um, based on your collateral. And then when you pay it back, they burn that money. Um, it's, well. worth, it's worth noting that this, uh, this is new to crypto, but this is also extremely not new in the world of equity. Um, right. This is literally a, a margin account, right? If yeah. you own a truck account with, with a million dollars of Apple shares, you can take about half of that out uh, as yeah. capital margin. And that rate is somewhere between, you know, one to six to 8%, depending on, you know, your choice of brokerage. So that's a very like baked out model. Um, and, uh, but on, in crypto, this is just like being used, I would say uh, much more actively than maybe margin. Actually margin is being used a lot on Robinhood. So who am I to say? Yeah, yeah. We're definitely like, that's my big fear right now is the amount of, you know, leveraging that, that, that's going on right now where people are just continuing to take out loans to buy more in. And that's, that can get a little scary if you start having the cascading margin calls, right, on, on some of these if, if prices start to drop. But, but right, it, you know, what you're saying is like, I think, you can, I don't know, I haven't read that much about this. I think billionaires have been using this strategy for years, right, to fund their lifestyles. They, they, they don't have to sell. They don't have to pay the capital gains. They can just keep these stocks and let them compound and meanwhile take out loans that are, you know, easy to pay back. Um, so this is another way that we might say user-generated finance is a way of democratizing what was only available to the ultra-rich, making it more available to, to everyone else in these same kind of procedures. We're still clearly at the early days of this where the fact that you don't have any KYC protections means that um, these protocols have to be very conservative in how much money they're going to give you because they don't, you know, they can't make the same calls a bank would about how likely you are to pay it back and what your spending habits are, uh, et cetera. Um, but that's fine. Uh, that's okay. You know, so they're hopefully being careful with it. Right. And that's, and that's a collateral model. And, and the reason I bring up, I've, I've gone out on this tangent to talk about this collateral model of, you know, putting out money and then taking out a loan is if you think about equity, you know, if you normally buy equity, you're an angel investor, you're a VC, uh, it's not that different, right? Like, like equity is kind of like collateral in the sense that you've, you've bought into this thing that is now illiquid, right? And you're waiting to cash it out <laughs> at some point. It is different in the sense that you, you know, with equity, you own it, and then you're going to be able to sell it eventually. Uh, whereas with collateral, you're going to have to pay it to get it back. But we might now start thinking, well, all this money is just sitting there, right? Like, like all this equity is just sitting there in private markets. People have bought this equity. They can't trade it. They can't do anything with it. Yeah, there's, there's some, you know, new protocols online where you can, you know, trade private shares, but it's complicated and it's like a $200,000 minimum, uh, you know, protocol to do that. So, you know, can you, can, can you take that equity that you own and could you stake that? Could you say like, this is my collateral. I want to take out something in the meantime. And, and imagine what that would look like. You would say, 
okay, I bought into um, I bought into Stripe, private company, right? I own a bunch of equity in Stripe. In theory, it's worth a million dollars. In practice, I can't do anything with it. I can't access it. I can't really sell it, or it's very hard for me to do so. But what if what if I was basically treating that as my collateral, and I could then take out tokens representing my stake in uh, in Stripe, right? And then say, hey, everyone, what's that, James? Synthetic Stripe. Yeah. Yeah, and what if I have the synthetic stripe, which is now a token, and I can go sell that off to everyone and say, hey, you buy this token, it's going to give you rights to buy back that equity, you know, when you eventually can. And so now, I, you know, Scott Kapoor has talked about, you know, that, that he thinks the, the private markets and, and public markets will increasingly, you know, start to merge. Maybe you could use tokenization where I'm effectively able to trade the synthetic stripe, and it's being backed by collateral, which is equity, right? And I'm able to go and trade that back and forth so that, uh, you know, anyone who wants in on Stripe can now buy a token from me. And they'll probably have to pay some sort of premium for that because it's liquid, uh, you know, as well. But that's fine. They're probably willing to do that. And now I've effectively been able to, you know, get out of my position, trade that for cash, uh, you know, if I need to. And it's a win on all sides um, because you've just opened up this very illiquid asset to liquidity, um, which is great for markets in theory. <laughs> so, so that's that's the second model, which is thinking. Well, what if, what if we start thinking about tokens as the like synthetic loan that we're getting out, while the collateral is 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 being staked uh, instead? If that makes sense, the equity is being staked as collateral. It, does this model apply to thinking about just tokens of projects, or is this a new model to think about kind of early stage venture or venture? I think the, the, the literal way would be a, a new, a whole new way of thinking about venture. But I think metaphorically, we could probably think that this is actually in some ways what's already going on, right? Which is to say, there are a bunch of people who own equity in Uniswap, but they can't do anything in it, with it right now. It's not a public company. They can't trade it at all. So what if, what if these tokens, and we're just, what we're really doing with them, right, is we're treating them as equity. And in a way, it kind of makes sense if we think that they are, you know, the equity form, they're the token form of equity, right? Where in other words, people, have, they're backed by this collateral, uh, they're backed by this equity that is there. And instead what we can trade is the tokens on this thing. Now that takes a speculative leap. <laughs> it takes a speculative leap to say that you have to treat tokens as equity, but that's effectively what people are already doing. I guess so, yeah. the key difference is with the yes. Uniswap token, you can't redeem it for something else. It is already the thing. Like if you have the synthetic Stripe thing and I buy it off you, I yes. can go back to the protocol and say, give me the real Stripe, illiquid yes. as it is, at least say it's mine, right? Yes. Whereas with Uniswap, I have Uni tokens, but I cannot redeem. That's, that's exactly it. And that's exactly the issue, right? Is that for now, as long as these are private markets, as long as no one could trade the equity anyway, it doesn't matter. You know, no one could get access to that equity anyhow. So the fact that it, you know, it's stuck as collateral and, you know, and meanwhile people are trading tokens is fine. But what if that company ever goes public? I don't think Uniswap's ever gonna go public. I don't think they can. But like, you know, what if another crypto project, people are treating these tokens as equity, but then the project goes public. And meanwhile, you now have double equity, right? You have the people treat, treating the tokens as equity and you have the actual equity that goes public and is traded on the stock market. And presumably that would be very destructive of the value of the tokens um, at that point, because at that point you would realize model two isn't accurate, <laughs> that these tokens aren't really synthetic equity, even though everyone's treating them that way. 
Uh, and they're actually not worth anything because the actual equity is being owned by the venture capitalists who have backed this project and are now trading it on public markets. Um, so, so for the moment, as long as we're in private markets, it makes sense to treat tokens as equity. The second that you, you move to public markets, it might not anymore. Has, um, so, yeah. has a crypto project ever gone public or even has a pathway or, or um, I don't Which know. Which tokens you mean? When they, when they had tokens. Sorry? I mean, like, because we could say Coinbase or something, but, but uh, you mean like uh, a company that launches tokens. tokens. Exactly. Right. No, I don't think so. Right. Uh, and I think that's the big question. Right? Yeah. Or, I mean, it could go in reverse too. Like, what if Tesla starts offering their own tokens, you know, as well? Like, how do, what are those? Right. <laughs> um, are they? That, well, that sort of happened. Like, companies have certainly issued tokens. Like, um, I mean, Uniswap's te technically one. I think some of the exchanges, like Orbi Exchange and Binance, like they have their tokens in addition to, um, yeah. to the private entity, right? So it goes the other way. Right. And those, and those can serve a function, right? Like a BNB token, like save you some transaction fees, you know, uh, in theory. And then, so then you could price it out to say how much of those transaction fees worth overall that should be the worth of the BNB token uh, as well. But, but right, this is, so, so, so basically if you compare model one and model two, and there's no question, right? Model one makes more sense, but model two might be what actually people are doing, which is treating equity as if it's, um, are treating tokens as if they're equity, even though they're not. <laughs> um, yeah, let me, let me, like, so a model two is going to be delved to in your, in your essay. And I think, I think you don't, I guess to me, at least you don't need to make a faith, a leap of logic in the sense that there is some kind of underlying equity behind these token projects like Uniswap and, yeah. and, you know, Polkadot and whatnot, and that people are hoping when they buy tokens, it's equivalent to the, the real equity underneath. Um, yeah. I think, you know, given that these projects uh, achieve such superior liquidity and valuation yeah. uh, in the token market, in the crypto market, there is no incentive for them to go backwards into the kind of traditional, like to go public on the NASDAQ or anything. Right. So I think it's simpler in the sense that people are buying these governance tokens um, because they look and feel like buying stock and they've yeah. almost memed themselves into believing it's buying stock. And now it's just like behaving like it's buying stock or equities. Yeah. Um, that and that's generated kind of finance, right? Which is like, how long can you convince yourself of this value if yeah. it isn't there? Um, and Uniswap is playing a good game because they're telling you it will be there. <laughs> they're making this promise. You will get 0.05% of transaction fees. So you can start telling yourself that this is a good investment because it eventually will be worth that. But you're, you are taking a risk, which is that you are treating a centralized entity as if it were a decentralized one. Um, and, and basically, if, if I really had to cut through everything I just said, it, it would be that tokens will have value when protocols actually decentralize. If protocols can actually decentralize, then the tokens are really meaningful. Um, because you say they, Uniswap already has achieved that with its 70% kind of community distribution of tokens? But, the, but you don't get anything for that token, right? Like you just get a token. <laughs> As in, but, but like when you say decentralized, I mean, I'm thinking governance because 70% gives you 70% voting power, right? Yeah. In theory, the 70%, it's not fully airdropped out yet because it's, it's still given over time to the LP, to the liquidity providers. Yeah. Let's say that one, the, you know, the two thirds of the tokens are fully issued. Um, the 1 billion tokens are fully out, which means yeah. all the early devs and VCs control a third and community 
controls two thirds of these tokens, which are governance tokens. All they can do is vote and they can vote on, you know, the two crucial matters are what to do with the community treasury, the Uniswap treasury, and two, um, do, does Uniswap make make certain, uh, like does, does it take a percentage of transaction fees? So wouldn't you say that in that scenario, the community has the supermajority voting power yeah. Um, even the majority voting power to to vote themselves like a, a cut of the uh, the uh, transaction fees. Yeah, yeah, com- completely. The, the the question is, you know, why why hasn't it been done, and when, why is there a V three of Uniswap that seems to have been developed by a few people in secret? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that wasn't wasn't. Uh, you know, it, it, it the, there is, I think, also an open question of what do governance rights really mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I, I've even been thinking about that, like you know, with. Uh, you know, Rary protocol, which got uh, hacked. I lost a couple of ether in this thing. And so I've been participating, uh, you know, in that. And and you realize even, even the ways that, yes, it's community driven, but the ways you frame a question really change how much control the community actually has. Like they said, how much money do we want to reimburse? 33%, 67%, 100%. Or zero percent, right? But what if they put it on a spectrum? What if they had averaged everyone's instead of just taking, you know, the majority winner? Like, there's, there's, there's all sorts of ways that that um, we also need to start thinking about what governance actually means because it isn't. It might be in theory fully democratized, but like we might have very different ideas of what democracy is. So implement. That's very interesting point. I'm in Rari as well. So you were, were you an LP in Rari? Uh, yeah, yeah. Just, I, I mean, it was, it was small, but I'm. Um, Annoyed. <laughs> I, I I just bought the I just bought the, the, the worthless token because <laughs> I, I no they're 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 great people I I I think they're wonderful and I really appreciate their concern for the community and and, and doing yeah. what they're trying to do and I appreciate the open discussions and I think they're handling it really well. Um, yeah. This isn't I'm, I'm this is nothing against them. It's just to say no. It's they might have framed that question differently and gotten a very different answer from the community. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's a great point. It's almost like saying. Um, uh, it, this is this is saying governance matters in the details of how um, it manifests for the token ho- to the governance. Yeah, token exactly. right? It's almost like it's back to age-old question of basically like any form of democracy or any kind of community-based um, um, right. project. If you put, you know, in a democracy, people can vote, but uh, it they vote on these like referendums or propositions that's put together by lawmakers. So given that someone a centralized or, you know, a, a oligarchic entity still gets to define how the question is framed, that puts real restrictions on how much expression of, of governance the community can have in the first place. Right. And, th- and that's the thing is that all of these protocols, you know, as much as we love decentralization, they are, you know, they have a unelected official who, who is, you know, in, in some ways in charge of putting these questions before users. And that's fine if, if we're in a slow transition towards complete decentralization, and this is part of that transition. I'm yeah. Okay with that. Um, I think there are good examples where people have, um, this is certainly addressed well, like from Mirror yeah. Protocol, which I think we're both familiar with. Mirror is like synthetics. It's a, it's a way to um, create assets, synthetic assets on, on a blockchain that mirrors the performance of real world assets. In the case of Mirror, it's, uh, it's mirroring the performance of stocks uh, and ETFs. And uh, basically, they have a governance system where users can nominate um, certain stocks or ETFs to be listed on Mirror. And that is, that is completely user-generated. There's no like council of, uh, of, of um, approvers in the, in the Mirror system. It's literally users post a proposal in the, in the 
I don't know, forums or whatever is the equivalent. Uh, you know, one of the recent proposals was to list ARKG, the uh, ARK Genomics ETF. Uh, you know, no one, that was completely user generated. And then the user goes on and, and tells other people, hey, vote for this pro- vote for this proposal and you have to get over a certain threshold. In this case, it narrowly missed, missed the threshold. But in this process, it's completely user generated. Even the way it's framed, even the selection process is completely user generated. Right. Right. And that's, yeah, we're decentralization is a spectrum, right? <laughs> uh, and and it's, it's probably a horizon that we're always getting closer to or hopefully getting closer to. Um, but it will depend on a lot on the project, you know, and I think you can be a DAO, but you can also be DAO-ish. <laughs> you can be a semi-DAO, right? <laughs> As well. So yeah, it's going to, and, and you can be on your way to being a DAO, right? It can be that slow transition. And in that slow transition from centralization, decentralization, you might also be in between that model of equity versus tokens as well. And it might be a little unclear which one of those has value, or if you just treat the token as a proxy for equity in the meantime, which I think is, is makes a lot of sense in the short term. Uh, the question for me is whether that makes sense in the long term as, as well. I think what's crystallized, I mean, I, I was very open-ended going into this conversation. Um, I think what's crystallized for me just while talking is how yes. important governance is i've always thought of it as a rather nebulous nice to have when it, in, when it comes to crypto um but now that like we're getting to the weeds of it and looking through uh you know through the kind of lens of looking at uniswap uh it is it really is it, it affects i mean long term it really affects the life and death of the project uh it, it, more like con- substantively it affects the, the way a project can be valued it, it affects whether it has you know, quote unquote, cash flows, it really is kind of everything once I think if you put the timeline um, sufficiently long, um, yeah. I think everything that that's ever been studied and, and uh, experimented with with kind of go- government and, you know, democratic institutions becomes extremely vital here. And in a way where, as you say, governance and de- decentralization, decentralization in a way is just a proxy word for democracy nation like how democratic you want to be right and all the projects call it in the crypto top 100 are a spectrum of how decentralized they are and and um it's kind of almost like a spectrum of in the traditional are you know a couple of hundred countries on earth uh, between autocratic and democratic and and not it's not like one if you go to one direction the results are automatically deterministically better you have outliers like singapore right, right. so yeah, all these questions come back, you know, these hundred-year-old questions, uh, you know, around enlightenment principles and government comes back and now applies to protocols like Uniswap. And depending on how you design the governance process, we haven't even seen governance capture yet, right? Regulatory capture has mucked up a, a bunch of the real world. Um, sooner or later, we're going to have governance capture in crypto, and that could like detract value from something that that was once very valuable. One one thing I think a lot about is um, is Occupy Wall Street in in 2010, and you know during the whole GameStop saga, there was a lot of comparison of uh, Wall Street bets being like the Occupy Wall Street that found a way to make money, right? Like screw you, Wall Street, but we're also going to play your game. We're going to play it better than you. We're going to make you play our rules, and we're we're going to make money off of it. And uh, you know it definitely reflects this this longstanding narrative against banks, right? No question, like what's the most popular newsletter? Uh, you know, for the, you know, Ether community, it's, it's bankless, right? That's the name of it, it's bankless. 
Um, and so this is something that's been building. But the other, the, the, the thing that gets less talked about is, you know, uh, Occupy Wall Street in, in 2010 was super attacked, not because of uh, its protests against the banks. No, no one could really make that case. But instead, what I think a lot of, you know, conservatives in particular tried to do was to say, well, you can't have this because there's no leader. It's crazy to have this movement without a leader. And in some ways, they were right. It, it is incredibly difficult in, in a physical space, uh, especially one owned by the state, to be able to get a group of people together where one asshole isn't going to totally derail that by, you know, picking up the mic or, you know, screaming over everyone and, you know, shattering windows. And in fact, that is what happened with, with Occupy Wall Street was you had a few people who like destroyed the buildings that they were in and then it was over. Um, but I do think it's the beginning of, you know, thinking about like Occupy Wall Street was, was trying to be a DAO. <laughs> like that's what it was. Uh, and uh, it had no governance. Right, right, yeah. right. Uh, or, or they were trying to, you know, spread governance equally in some ways, right? Uh, and it's very hard in a physical space and it's a lot easier in a digital one. Uh, and it's a lot easier with smart contracts, but it's also a lot easier when you can program that, pro program that in first. And I think protocols trying to transition to decentralization, I really hope they succeed. Um, but I think that might be harder than if, if you've built it to be decentralized from, from the beginning. Um, like Ethereum, I, I, I think in many ways has. Yeah. I think if you look at, that's a very interesting lens. Um, if you look at uh, kind of Occupy Wall Street, the sentiment is very much the same as, you know, a lot of the people who would be into bankless today. Um, but the thing it lacked, I think are the two things vital to longevity is A, it had no mechanism for governance, short of, you know, I don't know, Telegram, Facebook groups and whatnot. Um, and the other thing is it had no incentive structure, which is the more powerful, the human. And, and that's the key thing is like, I just keep thinking we're reliving the like late 90s, early 2000s, but with monetization, right? And that's what I was talking about before with like the RSS feed and Blogspot versus Substack. Substack's the exact same thing we had 20 years ago, except it's with monetization, right? And I think crypto is like this too. The, the, the crypto is, is these decentralized movements, but with incentives. Uh, attached to them as well. And so, yeah, you're, as we found out with Visa, you can bribe people and you can really, you can really incentivize human behavior, um, as, especially when it aligns with their ideals and they get paid. It's, that's, that's a hard thing to, to fight against. <laughs> totally agreed. I think it really is. It's, it's funny. We never, I don't think we knew we were going to get to this point at the beginning of the conversation, but it does yeah. seem like DeFi um, is almost a spiritual successor to uh, to Occupy Wall Street from at least the tech literate like subset, right? Not right. not everyone. Um, they're, they're, that Occupy Wall Street is a large fragmented group, but um, it right. is it is it has two new features in, in that got added in this release, uh, and one is basically in, uh, called a, call it incentive structure in the form of tokens that have immediate liquidity and monetary value, and B there's coordination through uh, governance uh, through voting mechanisms, smart contracts. Um, and, and of course, the communication layer through uh, traditional things like Telegram and Twitter. So with these two minor, two, well, substantial tweaks, uh, it went from a, a mob-like thing that just kind of was a flash in the pan uh, to real, uh, uh, I guess, existential threat to the traditional yep. finance system. Occupy Wall Street is very easy to break up because uh, it had no space to, to occupy. <laughs> like it literally was called Occupy Wall Street because it was occupying someone else's space and then was kicked out, right? Like, um, like Bloomberg eventually said, and the police and you're done. You can't do that in digital world. Uh, yeah. You know, this is, 
there is no way to, and there's probably no way to destroy Uniswap. You can arrest the, you know, the people who created it, but that will continue to exist as a protocol. Um, and that's, yeah, I think that's very powerful. I think, I think the next thing to think about is, you know, yes, we've achieved, if we can achieve democracy within these communities of people who hold these tokens, great. Hopefully we can also help achieve it for everyone beyond the token holders in the outside world who are not, you know, part of this ecosystem yet and find a way to bring them in and also, um, and, and support as well. Awesome. David, it's been a great conversation. Where can, um, where can our folks find you? DavidPhillips.substack.com, uh, I think is the easiest one. And uh, Divine Economy is, uh, is the Twitter handle. Um, so yeah, looking forward to the 100 followers and uh, all getting my special Divine Economy uh, governance token. <laughs> that way they can all tweet for me and I don't have to bother doing it. <laughs> you go. You're going to get your own um, airdrop once you subscribe to David. Uh, That's and- right. That's right. The David took. <laughs> Get excited, guys. <laughs> get immediate liquidity on Uniswap. Yeah, that's right. I'm uh, just here to get rich. <laughs> definitely give David a follow. Um, his, his essays are great fun. And uh, I think it's uh, if you enjoy discovering someone early, um, this, is, this is definitely the way to go. David, it's been great talking to you. And uh, hopefully we'll get to chat uh, in the near future as well. Soon, over, over beer. Or maybe, maybe physical location as much as I sound opposed to that would, would be nice one day. All right. Thanks, James. <laughs> All righty. Thank you. Bye. Cool.